Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. This is a very special episode of the Australian Investors Podcast because I'm chatting to Professor Alan Duffy. You may know Alan from ABC or The Project or basically anywhere where science and space is spoken. Alan hails from Ireland, but through a series of studies and academic tours ended up in Australia where he has begun his family life and is a professor at Swinburne University connecting industry with space technology. In this podcast, we talk about Alan's story as well as some of the unsolved, I guess, mysteries of science and space. And we talk about some of the more intriguing concepts that tend to make its way into popular culture like aliens and UFOs. But I would highly encourage you to check out his Audible series, Astronomical, which dives deep into is there life out there and what would it look like? You'll find a heap of show notes and links to extra resources if you are as fascinated by this stuff as I am. Without further ado, here's Professor Alan Duffy. Alan, thanks for taking some time to to join me on the show, mate. I really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Today, we're going to talk about something that we have definitely, I can say categorically, never spoken about. In fact, we're going to talk about multiple things that I've never spoken about, not just on this channel, but on any of the channels that we've created over the past five years. We're going to talk about space. We're going to talk about dark matter. We're going to talk about technology. Uh, we're going to talk about aliens and basically everything so that comes with that so all of the interesting things i'm a massive nerd for this stuff alan um the Mm. only thing that i like doing more than learning about investing or finance is actually space so um it just captivates me so it's a real treat and i gotta say thanks to kate my co-host um and colleague who put us in touch i thought what we could do to just kick things off mate is some really light-hearted kind of like icebreaker questions and the first, sure. the first one is, what is your favorite movie or series, television series on space and why? Um, okay, so fav- favorite movie has to be uh, either, it's now a toss-up actually, but 2001, A Space Odyssey, and that's because uh, the physics was just done so well, that slow feeling to the scenes just you know, perfectly encapsulates just how long it takes. You're traveling incredible speeds, but space is big and it takes a long time to get anywhere. Um, but then I actually think that the 
Interstellar, the one around the black hole. Um, I thought it was great when I saw it. I, and the, again, the physics was great. It was spectacular to use the time dilation effects that you get uh, as, near to a black hole as, as an instrumental part of the story. Mm. No spoilers, but anyways. And I thought that was all cool. And then I met Kip Thorne, who is the Nobel laureate. He, he won a, a Nobel Prize for uh, his work in, in demonstrating gravitational waves uh, could be uh, um, detected uh, from colliding black holes. And he was the science consultant for that. And he, used, he was telling me that Chris Nolan would ring him up randomly in the night and just basically hound him and go, I need this scene to work like this. I need, I need an extra 30 seconds on that wormhole sequence. Can you give me that? Can you give me that, Kip? And he's like, I'm stretching the physics. I don't know. But the thing was, he would not break the physics. So if that's what the scene... You know, if literally there was no way for a Nobel laureate to come up with a way to make the scene play a little different, then Chris Nolan just accepted that that was the constraints and they ran with it and made a film out of it, except for the wormhole scene. Even a man of his brilliance could not get that wormhole to last any longer than the, you know, fraction of a second. Um, favorite series? Uh, there's too many to name. I'm a big Trekkie, uh, big mm -hmm. Star Wars nerd as well. I adored... Um, uh, for all mankind. Uh, I love that idea of what happened if the Soviets got to the moon first and it no longer became a symbol of peace, uh, but rather of, of conflict. Mm -hmm. And I particularly find that uh, compelling because that's that's a direction that we are finding ourselves once more where the, the space race is heating up and it's no longer between superpowers, but startups. And I think that's quite a uh, an exciting area maybe we'll get to. So mm -hmm. uh, I can highly recommend all of those things. And if anyone wants any more recommendations, uh, I tweet often about all the things I'm watching as well. Yeah, and Alan's, all of the links to things that we talk about today will be in the show notes, including Alan's uh, Twitter feed. So the second question, and um, we're going to get to a lot of the substance behind each of these things, but um, I'm curious because you've got your finger on the pulse, you're a fantastic educator. Um, obviously you're here in Australia, but you focus on you know global projects and things that are happening mm -hmm. around the world and literally out of this world. So. I'm curious if there's one thing, whether it's some research currently being undertaken, whether it's one of these things that physics has to solve in the next hundred years, something that keeps you awake at night. Yeah. So, I mean, there's obviously my own personal uh, research, uh, but that seems maybe too easy to pick. So the <laughs> thing that probably keeps me up at night um, There's actually two. One, one is a well-posed question and the other is, is not reflecting my lack of, of knowledge. And the first is, um, where did the uh, order come from the universe or the low entropy beginning? If we, if we wind the clock back to the Big Bang, everything is um, an incredible, what's called incredibly low entropy. So in other words, it has lots of um, potential for things to then change and grow and become more complex, interesting structures, but the entropy inevitably rises. So there's this issue of where, how, how does the start of our universe begin with low entropy when we know that inevitably entropy increases. So disorder increases, your, your mug falls off the kitchen bench, it breaks, it doesn't spontaneously reassemble, mm -hmm. right? That's just never going to happen in, in the lifetime of a universe. So where did that start come from? So it's kind of another way of you know saying where do we all come from, but it's a really particularly um, painful point in physics right now, and we really we're nowhere on that answering that. Uh, I think it's quite mm. and for most 
uh, of us in our physics education is it sort of we just see the picture of the afterglow of the Big Bang, the microwave, the cosmic microwave background, and we're like, oh yeah, that's fine. <laughs> no one really sort of gets into the meat of that. Um, and the second is 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 a hard is the hard question of consciousness and how do you get the kinds of experiences, the subjective experience of consciousness, and how do you get that from a a uh, a body composed of chemicals, you know, neurons firing, lots of fields, electromagnetic fields, and and everything else intertwined how do you get emergent phenomena from fundamental laws of physics that i can write down it's mm. it is a complete mystery to me and i suspect that uh, were we to be able to answer that that would be the great uh, understanding of of humanity uh, but maybe we need to find other examples of consciousness before we can figure it out in ourselves mm, yeah um there is uh, when you said the series before there is one series that I've watched recently called The Expanse. I think it's oh, that was the other one I was going to choose. <laughs> it's now on. I think it's on Amazon or Netflix. Some they it's yeah. jumped between the two, but I, I love the series. I, I mm. don't question the physics too much. I just kind of watch it and just love it. Um, mm. And in that show, Alan, in that series, you would know that they send nukes out to try and mm. destroy things in space. So they send nukes out for to deflect asteroids or yep. things that are being hurtled towards Earth. But I heard in a recent conversation, and this I should probably know this, but I don't know the answer of why using nuclear warheads would be such a bad idea mm. uh, in in space. Yeah, so this is always the uh, if we always the answer in Hollywood, right? If you have mm. a you know a pressing uh, catastrophe from space, whatever, just nuke it. Uh, so you know Armageddon style, right? Let's let's up Bruce Willis, plant a nuke, and uh, and that will solve the problem of a colliding asteroid. Now. Uh, the, the one issue is uh, it takes a lot of nukes to change the direction of an asteroid. There's a, there's a lot of energy, but mm. asteroids are big things. And uh, the challenge is if you um, get it wrong, then you've now got a radioactive asteroid hurtling towards you. So that, that's not great. <laughs> uh, maybe you destroy it like in the movies. The problem is they all, the individual pieces continue in the same direction, give or take, as the original mother asteroid did. So now you've got not a, you know, bullet-like strike, but you've got a shotgun blast of asteroids that will crash into the Earth, uh, making things worse. And again, and are now all radioactive. So the best way to deflect an asteroid uh, is no longer speculative science fiction, but is in fact demonstrated science fact where the NASA double asteroid redirect, uh, redirection test, or DART, uh, was a high-speed intercept. A spacecraft uh, went uh, from memory something like 25,000 kilometers per hour, slammed into an asteroid that was never going to hit us, don't worry, even before or after. Uh, and we were trying to see would that kind of a high-speed collision nudge or change the trajectory of the asteroid enough to give us confidence that were we in danger some years hence of an incoming asteroid, we could go out and, and deflect it. And you really only have to nudge it a tiny bit. And uh, that over the course of years, that tiny change in its uh, motion will add up to a big enough change that it misses Earth. And that's now a demonstrated fact. And mm. um, for me, the the incredible thing about the DART mission was this, this sublime accuracy. You hit a target of about 160 meters across from an 11 million kilometer journey at that speed. And, and you know, minds melt when you try to Mm. say things like that. So the, the, the analogy I could try to create was this was the um, you throwing a dart and hitting uh, uh, the dartboard from 
one side of the earth to the other. Uh, and it's even better than that. In fact, they got actually within the bullseye because when you look at the video, it is just incredible. It just mm. moves, 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 moves. And then absolutely the most, you know, uh, exciting hole in one video or, you know, strike you've ever seen in 10 pin. Like it's just an, such an elegant thing. And what we've demonstrated is that we don't have to go the way of the dinosaurs and uh, we don't need to endanger Bruce Willis either in doing it. Yeah, I, after I heard you talk about this, the DART program from NASA, I went and Googled it immediately. I paused the, the interview that you were part of and I went and looked at it. And I was inc incredibly impressed that we could actually stream this collision. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, we could watch right, it basically right. in real time yeah. from space back on Earth. Yeah. Um, I just thought that was incredible. This This is... I think betraying your AV experience and just how hard streaming is, right? But yes, it is an extraordinary effort. So the, the NASA Deep Space um, Communications Complex in Tidbinbilla in Canberra is one of three global sites and they will have uh, taken the signal along with Goldstone and uh, the site in Spain, uh, Goldstone US and then Spain. Um, so Australia has a key role in all of these, these deep space missions where we receive that signal. But if you've ever want to feel dwarfed by uh, some mega astronomy structures, the uh, ginormous radio receiver at Tidbinbilla, you can uh, essentially, you can visit and if you ask nicely, maybe they'll let, even let you in, but you are sitting within this incredible structure, 70 meters across about 7,000 tons of steel, just slowly and silently moves above you as it tracks and it, and it um, uh, locks on to other targets. It's just one of those incredible experiences that I've been very fortunate to to have in my career. I find, you know, one of the advantages that investors have in when, we, when it comes to investing is the ability to think almost exponentially. Like we don't deal with the numbers that you're dealing with, but we think about things that don't move in a straight line. And I think when we start talking light years or when we start talking billions of kilometers and things like this, we just, our brain can't handle it. Um, yep. And I, I think there's going to be numerous instances in this conversation where I have to check myself and I have to just kind of recalibrate whereabouts that might be, <laughs> you know, in space and time. But um, for a couple more, uh, like, I guess, short uh, answer questions I've got here for you, Alan. This is like me testing the professor. By the way, I was not, these were not short answers. My apologies. <laughs> no, that's, <laughs> not, that's really <laughs> No, I love it. So um, please. But I, I, I say this tongue-in-cheek, and we just had a brief conversation about this off-air, which is who is the best astrophysicist of all time? And I guess you could take this to mean anything. You could take it to mean who does a very good job of education, past or present, um, who had the most breakthroughs in your mind, or just things like this, like names that come to mind for you. Yeah, so I think, I think those people who have had those singular um, – Achievements. I mean, of course, there's Einstein, there's Hawking, there's those usual names. Newton was really quite absurdly brilliant where his laws of gravity were formed uh, with just a small fraction of his attention. He was doing optics. He was doing, uh, um, well, he was, he was actually trying to create gold from lead, right? I mean, he was doing all sorts of wild things. The smallest amount of his attention was based on astrophysics as we would know it today, and he revolutionized everything. Um, I think, look, in terms of, of those uh, impacts, Beyond the scientific alone, no, very few scientists work in isolation. That lone genius effect really just doesn't exist. It's not real. We're all in teams. We all collaborate widely. Einstein collaborated all through his periods of, of so-called, you know, on the outer sitting in um, in the patent office. He was still talking to professors in, in the local unis. Um, so I think that the uh, – so this it's very hard to find a singular achievement, but 
I would actually probably uh, select Carl Sagan because oh, yeah. he was a gifted uh, scientist, astronomer. He himself, uh, as well as physics, he was very aware of the importance of public support to science. You don't get these mega projects, billion dollar plus projects up. And you know, we'll obviously talk about a few of those. Australia is a, is a leader in several without public support and awareness of, of the science and the importance of it. So I think that through his own direct research, but far more through the hundreds of millions that he's inspired and, and had a, mm. as advocates for science, he has achieved more than, you know, perhaps any, any other single human. And he's mostly just, he did it on his own. It was re really quite extraordinary. Mm. And I often think about that, Alan, I was trying to liken, say, who you would be in the investing context. or So a lot of people maybe would have heard you on things like Triple J or The Project or um, even in numerous other interviews ac across the internet or TV. And I was trying to think about, you know, one, one name that always gets brought up in finance is the barefoot investor, Scott Pape, because he, oh, yeah, int sure. he introduces yeah. so many people and he also does the project uh, circuit yep. as well, right? So he introduces so many people to this concept called investing in money, which is so important in a similar mm -hmm. way that you do that to so many people uh, for science, basically, mm -hmm. generally, but not, not just astrophysics, but science generally. And I think about that and I think that is such a wonderful thing. You Like maybe not in your instance, but maybe in Scott's instance, he's maybe not the the best investment advisor or financial advisor the world has ever seen, yeah. but he's probably the best we've ever seen in terms of the education piece, which is so important because it inspires other people to follow mm -hmm. in that wake. And I, I think about that a lot. And I, I guess one follow-on question I have around this is if you could have a conversation with someone, maybe it's Carl Sagan, maybe it's someone else, if you could just have a chat with someone past or present, is Carl who you would seek to to sit down and have a coffee with or? Yeah. Um that would feel, oh man, how intimidated would you be? But yes, I, th I think so. I think Carl would be a wonderful person to speak to. You know, Feynman was always incredibly entertaining. Um, so I think, I think there's one figure of note who's, who's always overlooked. It's, it's a, um, uh, a female um, mathematician, I guess, fundamentally, but she, she revolutionized physics. Uh, known as Emmy Newther. And I've always wondered, uh, but she's been forgotten. And, and you know, she was of Einstein's um, uh, time, and I believe he himself recognized her genius and, and um, certainly felt uh, her efforts were beyond world-changing. I mean, really, her Newther's theorem is one of the most beautiful proofs uh, I've ever seen. But I would probably catch up with her just to understand what it was like to have been, in fact, she's one of those rare soul genius, lone geniuses I spoke about, um, to have been unrecognized in your own time, to have developed something that would fundamentally shape how Einstein's, Feynman's, Hawking's in the future would develop their own theories. It's the frameworks in Newton's theorem for all of this stuff. So, um, so I would speak to her if only just to tell her that she does get recognized, that that her work mm. really is that important. Uh, and, you know, hopefully 
uh, here also, I, I believe she was a great dancer as well. So I think, I think, you know, if we could, you know, liven the party up as well, that would be fun. But I, you know, just one of these great minds that was unrecognized in the time. And one experience that would be to, to let them know history did not forget them and their fame only grew mm. certainly in the scientific community. It's interesting, right? Because obviously you see this on the research side of what you do and uh, being at Swinburne, but you know, there's that, I guess that famous St uh, Steve Jobs kind of quote where he talks about that Apple was built on the creation and invention of so many people gone before them. Mm. Um, but we know them for the phone and we credit them with so much. But yep. in fact, they they built that only because other people had gone before them. And I, so many people, like you just mentioned, um, Emmy Nutter, in the case of you have done things that contributed so much. And maybe it wasn't relevant at the time, but maybe 30 years later, all of a sudden someone thinks, wow, this is what I needed to create mm -hmm. this thing, uh, which mm -hmm. is just incredible. And we'll talk about that in a minute. We'll talk about how space actually affects us here on Earth and the innovations that a lot of the things that you think about and work on. But to to set the scene for people maybe who haven't heard you speak or been to a lecture or seen you on TV, can you give us a bit of insight into a younger Alan and how you got started on this journey? Um, it's taken you all around the world. People mm -hmm. can probably tell from your accent that there's like there's still a, there's almost like people are probably trying to pick it apart if they're just listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the audio, so can you take us back? How did you how did you even start on this journey? Yeah, so I'm I am originally from uh, Northern Ireland, and very much an I internationalized uh, accent through lecturing in many countries where international accents are. Um, subconsciously or consciously when you see the student feedback uh, <laughs> reduced in their extremes. Uh, so I, I was always fascinated about uh, the, the world around me, I, you know, very much was one of those kinds of curious kids and, and a particular fascination. I would be driving uh, between uh, the villages in, in, in Northern Ireland at night and, uh, you know, dad would be driving and I'd have my face absolutely just pressed against that cold glass window. And I would always be looking out at the stars, one of the advantages of Northern Ireland is not a lot of light pollution. There's just not a lot uh, going on. So I would have those, you know, pristine skies to enjoy. But it wasn't just the the uh, starlight. It was it was these regions between. And I was always struck by that darkness and whether it was uh, dark because there were no stars, uh, dark because. Uh, something was blocking the light of the stars or, or dark because there was something there, uh, but we just couldn't see it. And I mean, it turns out it's all three, actually, depending on where you look. So so I had this experience very early of being curious about the world. I was, um, I fell in love with with geology. We had this incredible ex exhibition at, at Ulster Museum. And I used to be always fascinated by the, by the rocks and the, t and the age of those rocks that was beginning to impress upon me just how much grander the universe was. Uh, but it was a, uh, my fate was sealed, as it were, when I, I read A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking. And in this book, he outlines, you know, there's, there's black holes, there's even a little bit of dark matter, there's, there's lots of, of great concepts. But perhaps the most shocking to me as a young, I was like 12 at that time when I was trying to read it, somewhat precociously, was that, that there was a job for a cosmologist there was literally someone who could be you know you could be paid to think about these these grand things and it that's ultimately what i i uh, undertook as my uh, phd in manchester and 
I had many incredible experiences through uni of, you know, exchange programs to uh, to the Netherlands um, to live there and, and learn physics in Dutch, which was which was um, a challenge, which demonstrated to me at least at the time that really I had incredible reserves of resilience that I just had never had tested and didn't and couldn't have believed uh, possible. It was not an easy time, but uh, by the end of that year, I was I was fluent in Dutch, which was which was incredibly mm-hmm. pleasing. But you know, every night I would have to like. Uh, uh, you know, during the day in lessons, I would be writing down the 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 notes, just just letter by letter. I didn't know what the words were, and then I would be translating with a dictionary at home that night. Uh, <laughs> and that's that's yeah, it was not not a great way to do um, exchange <laughs> program. But anyways, um, and through all of those experiences, I was made to realize how uh, wide the topic of of cosmology or astrophysics was that the but how important technology, uh, uh, advanced hardware, software, you know, my, my PhD was based on supercomputers and, and advanced code that has been developed by many, many people over years. And all of these um, pieces of what would ultimately be uh, my PhD and my, my research papers have built upon just so many hundreds, if not thousands of individuals in the hardware software space. And that recognition of, uh, science being a collective endeavor um, really hit home when I came to uh, Australia and I had this incredible position at, at this newly established uh, International Center for Radio Astronomy Research or ICRA in Perth and um, uh, Peter Quinn is the then director is now, now retired and in particular uh, this center was developed to uh, secure the square kilometer array. So this is the biggest telescope that will ever be built, I, I would guess. There are million, not one large telescope, but rather millions of smaller individual telescopes, all spread out across Australia and indeed across into Africa. Uh, two nodes are Af- uh, Australia and South Africa. And those dispersed telescopes are connected via supercomputers to act as one Earth-spanning uh, hmm. telescope. And with that, you can peer to the very such an edge of the observable universe is just just an awesome, awe-inspiring um, creation. And and the center was developed to design hardware, software, and and you know, in terms of technology and spin-outs, I can't wait to see what comes out of this square kilometer. I mean, as much data is produced by that facility as streams across the internet every day, right? So so wow. the internet's worth of information will come off this thing every day, right? So you can't possibly save it. So in real time, you have to sift through it and find the interesting things amongst that stream of data. So we are developing AI today that will define what we think the universe looks like tomorrow because no human eye will ever look at the data. We'll just be looking at what an AI has flagged as noteworthy and saved and eventually a human gets around to look at. Everything else will just be thrown away. There's just not enough hard disks in the world for that. So it's a really uh, exciting project, and I'm, and I'm sure will be incredible import. But at the time when I arrived in 2009, I, um, Peter was very aware that this was a project that needed public support. It's a huge amount of money. Um, the payoffs are immense. There's going to be jobs in the regions. You know, you're putting these these dishes everywhere, ideally in the regions up in, in the Murchison and, and WA. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of benefits, but we have to communicate that to, to the public and we have to communicate the why as well. It's not just the benefits, but there's a fundamental fascination that this will 
address. And he supported my uh, then very early, very awful. Uh, if you ever find the original transcript, uh, original recording, there's a Perth interview I did at the time. The, the late great Russell Wolf uh, interviewed me. It was oh gosh, it was just so awful. Even thinking, we're going to put it. this in the notes and make sure that no, we find no, no, it. no, no, no. Delete every copy of it, anyways. Um, so this is this is um, you know some some very early false starts in in communicating the science. But he supported that because he understood just how important the public awareness and support of astronomy was and in particular for this project which incredibly is now coming to, to online at least the precursors are, are already running and and the ground is being broken for the the full sk and it is it's extraordinary to quite frankly still be in the field uh, and get to see this this generational program that maybe commenced in the 80s um now finally come to to some fruition and the next you know, decade, we'll see it ramp up. And then again, an entire internet's worth of astronomical data will be streaming out of this. And we have to hope that we've designed our AI right and we don't miss something fascinating, something unexpected. How does it, so more of a technical question here, if it can't, if this type of information cannot be stored, how does, so like what is the type of infrastructure that underlies something like this? I told you, Alan, that we have a lot of engineers and a lot of people that are just genuinely curious about technology um, and about how the world works. But how does how does it take this ginormous amount of data and put that into something like, I guess, intelligible for yep. a human being? Yeah, uh, <laughs> with, with excellent electronics, it turns out. So you've got a few a few different stages, but essentially what you're doing is, the reason there's so much information is because each of those uh, individual telescopes has to be uh, connected with every other. And, you know, if there's 10, then there's 100 interconnects, give or take, you know, there's minus ones floating around, but yeah. roughly speaking. Um, but that scales, right? That's that's a square yeah. law, uh, so a quadratic um uh, relationship. So now we go to, you know, a thousand and there's a million. And and when you get to a million, of course, um, we're now talking 10 to the 12 possible uh, interconnects. And all of that data streaming down and those possible correlations is the mathematical term, means just an enormous amount of data. So you can do it in hardware. So literally not with computers at, per se, but, but just ultra fast electronics. And then you distill that down into something that's somewhat more manageable down through um, uh, optical fibers to a supercomputer center at Merchant. Even more reduction takes place. And every time you're throwing away information, but you just have to. Um, and then eventually you'll get it to a form where it could begin to be intelligible to human eyes. And at that point, that's where our preconceived notions about what's an interesting signal for example, a very bright uh, flash of radio, uh, uh, you know, similar to what you might listen to in the car, um, a one-off event is okay. That's interesting, but it's you know very likely that it was a passing plane, or and in fact, we've tracked people who've not turned off their mobile phones <laughs> in the planes, and we literally could see that that plane travel. So you know, there's many ways that we can start to triage the data and throw out those kinds of of events. But at the same time, one of the great breakthroughs in radio astronomy of just the last few years has been the recognition that there are these ultra bright, ultra quick flashes, literally fla uh, f faster than the blink of an eye, uh, but sh outshining the sun. 
and that these radio bursts or fast radio bursts are produced by, we assume, some fantastical new kind of, of a neutron star, perhaps known as a magnetar, but, but the jury's still out. Uh, those things were thrown away. Right? They just weren't recognized as actually being real. So now we have, we're going back through the archives, we're discovering that these things have been seen for years and just never noted. So we have to be really careful about our preconceived ideas and expectations. If you literally just look for what you know, then you're only going to find what you know. And I find that this is a very uh, um, exportable lesson to other fields where the use of AI in particular, where we are hard coding biases. I mean, it doesn't matter. You've got a, you know, it's a deep neural networks, whatever number of you know layers, or you've got a, you know, some sort of really super clever adversarial, you know, that were blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. What you're doing mm -hmm. fundamentally is providing it data or interrogating it with questions or KPIs or, you know, whatever, you know, optimization uh, um, uh, function you're using you are driving it to your own expectations. You have to be so, so clever and so diligent to not do that. And the problem is when you're in a hurry for an answer, that's that's the real danger I find with AI where, where in science and in business, we're in a hurry, all of the incentives are to get an answer quicker than the competition, Mm. And very limited amounts of, of effort are then spared to broadening that search criteria, thinking more holistically either about the problem or about our approach. And the wonderful thing about the SKA project is it's been such an obvious data challenge for so many years that we've had the time to think about this. We've worked with the likes of uh, Microsoft, for example, about those kinds of algorithms. And so we are making very general uh, algorithmic designs that I hope could find use in in other fields where you can be where the AI can let you know that it's found something worthy of attention that it was never told to look for but it's you know seems real mm -hmm. seems like you should check it out and I think in that way I mean obviously very much oversimplifying this incredible work that the computer science uh, teams have done in, in the CSR and others in data 61 but the idea is uh, something that I hope we can all benefit from of, of a more generalizable AI and certainly something that is going to be able to let us know that it's found something unexpected because that's that's the exciting thing. That's why you build a telescope that's <laughs> a square kilometer of collecting area that stretches out across continents because you want to look for the unknown. And, that's, mm. and, and the last thing you want to do is build this thing and then be missing at it when you're looking straight at it. We do a, um, when I say we, there are parts of our industry, the investments industry, which use the similar principle of basically not taking what we know and what we can see to be an exploitable opportunity, sort of arbitrage away an investment opportunity. Right. There is a, a company that's pretty widely well known. It's called uh, Renaissance Technologies. And this business is basically a quantitative investment firm, Alan. And what it did is that instead of taking like, stock market related data it actually took data from everything that it could possibly get mm -hmm. to just analyze and what it would take in for example is things like the weather in uh paris on a given day and whether that predicted the the stock market's return that day and use mm -hmm. variables that the human brain would never think to associate but happen to find those patterns early and then create a signal to the 
investing mm-hmm. team, which were just PhDs basically of mathematics and astrophysics. Yep. Actually, if you're looking for a, a ne- the next step in your career, I, I don't know. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. um, and so they they use that principle to basically not try and predict what the model will show you, but to let it guide. Uh, yep. the investment outcomes and it was really sure. quite interesting did i'm just going to ask a very um i guess low-hanging fruit question uh, question here alan which is that people will hear you talk about this and talk about your journey right and going to study in europe and then come to australia were you were you very bright as a young child like reading hawking's book very early on hmm. were you, like I, I don't know if there's any sense you could give us of that um, you know, I, it's not something that I usually ask so directly, but I just feel like these seem like very complex things. So do, does one need to be, um, at that level to, to work in this field? Yeah. So look, I, I would, I would have been maybe, uh, you know, top, uh, 10% academically, maybe, maybe, um, not even that perhaps, uh, in, in school right. at uni, the, I, you know, worked hard, and I think that's a very underappreciated uh, aspect of of uh, the intellectual toolbox, where hard work and persistence mm-hmm. um, is as important as intelligence, and 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 can make up for a lot. Actually, in my case, um, the, the lack of the intelligence is made up through through persistence. But the, I guess there's um, there's also it's important to recognise that in in science. You know, you, yes, you'll have your Einsteins, but you know, there's one in a generation, and uh, everyone else is just, you know, pretty smart, or maybe not even that smart, but maybe just diligent. And you know, in other words, there's a lot of different um, contributions, and you never know the person. It's not going to be the smartest person necessarily who will make the biggest breakthrough. There's an element of luck. There's a lot of rigor and and um, uh, focus. Uh, there's a wonderful book by uh, Susie uh, She, a friend of mine, and uh, works now at Melbourne Uni, uh, The 12 Experiments to Change the World. And she really meticulously shows that for a lot of the instances, it's not just a lone eureka, you know, lone genius eureka moment. A lot of these experiments took years of hard work. And yes, some of these people were truly brilliant, but a lot of them were just smart, curious, and very dedicated and built incredible machines that then revealed mm-hmm. the, the deeper nature of, of, of our world. And I think that particularly in the modern era, what we're seeing in in astronomy and uh, and very much so in other fields, but just speaking to my own, the idea of a gifted programmer or someone who knows databases, someone who's an electrician can actually do the work on the telescopes, the idea of an optics engineer or, you know, the physicist who's maybe thinking about uh, fundamental plasma physics that can allow a magnetar to do this burst that we then call a fast radio burst. You know, all of these people have critical roles in the endeavor of space and science research. So I think that that's a, um, I think in other words, it takes a lot of different capabilities and styles of work as well as focus areas of work to make this grand endeavor of science happen. It's, it's just that, mm very unfairly, you know, the astronomer at the end of it just gets to go and, you know, point at this thing and go, look, and, you know, like behind me is this, you know, this wonderful image, the impossible image of a, of a black hole, which, which um, was taken by the Event Horizon Telescope, which is an Earth, Earth, you know, spanning series of, of dishes connected up. And 
yeah, that's involved hundreds of people for decades and perhaps thousands if you include all the people that built the and continue to run the observatory. So, you know, it seems a little unfair that the one or two astronomers who might be in the press release get the get, get all the glory for it. But it really is a team effort. And in particular, with that diversity of skills and um, uh, types of intelligence or just, just diversity more generally neurologically, I, I think those things really are incredibly important. Um, yeah, there's the event horizon. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just showing for those people that are watching, uh, view, uh, listening only, you can actually see some of the things that we're talking about. So these, so this that's, is that's some of them. The others are all across the all across the globe. Incredible. And how about? So I came up with this. For, uh, yes. Yeah. This is the, so this, is this what a typical? I, 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 is this what it looks like? Like I, I don't know. I, I don't even know what I'm yeah, looking yeah, at. Yeah, sure. Here. So this is this is the prototype. So this is the Merchant Whitefield Array. Um, one of the uh, precursor uh, telescopes, if you will, uh, wonderful facility, in fact. Uh, so sensitive is actually detecting space junk by reflected, I believe it's ABC uh, radio uh, signals bouncing off the space junk and coming back to Earth and lighting up, as it were. And the telescope is able to see this junk drift by. Um, so, so the actual square kilometer array uh, low, the one that will be here, millions of these. Uh, um, Telescopes are, are look like Christmas trees. That's, yeah, I right. think it's actually called. I'm not sure if there's an official name. I should, I should <laughs> check this with the CSRO team. But anyway, we all call it the you know the, the Christmas tree uh, design, and it you know, looks very cool. Uh, and there's just going to be initially a hundred thousand, then ultimately a million, ultimately uh, a million of those strewn across the landscape, which will be very surprising if you happen to drive by. It will be look, look a little you know. Yeah, you, because these things almost look like little spiders um, on the ground, just sitting on the ground. They're not that usual, you know, curvature which you would you would yeah. see. And it's it's like a car radio, uh, more akin to a car radio than it is a telescope, except in the um, there is a uh, essentially thanks to modern computing, you can have a an electronically steerable design, and this is where if you add the signal up from uh, two telescopes and put a slight delay on one, you can effectively point the sensitivity one way or another. And in that way, you you really can use it like a, a normal telescope thanks to computers, which of course continue oh. to improve. This okay. is this is the design that gives you the best possible telescope and, and into the future. It's always gonna be as current as Moore's law provides. But the fascinating thing about this design is uh, one of the, the uh, early designs for, for uh, Square Kilometre Array, and the reason I actually came out that the telescope I was associated with is the Australia Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, or ASCAP, um, had some incredibly innovative, it does look more like a traditional dish, um, but like a giant foxtail dish, essentially. Uh, there's 36 of these in, in the Murchison right now, and uh, it focuses the signal at this uh a place where you would have your, you know, your eye if you were the, you know, human uh, viewer, and it's uh, an electronic eye, and it is so capable, so powerful, able to create those multiple, not just electronically steer, but just generate multiple little um, uh, uh, points of view, so to speak, or beams that this is transformative, revolutionary, mm. and was spun out into a company uh, called uh, Quasar uh, recently because the advantage with Quasar's technology is that for the one dish that you have, now not for astronomy, but for satellite traffic, for comms in particular, 
you've got your telescope pointed at a, a satellite, you're speaking one-on-one, right? Which, but, but now we have, we're in the era of swarms or constellations, thousands of them, and it's only mm-hmm. going to grow. So you can't dedicate a telescope receiver to one satellite. That just doesn't work anymore. But the technology from the CSRI was designed to generate you know, 36, 60, hundreds of beams, potentially, if, if you wanted. In other words, that little square unit, or rather you know, about a square meter across, uh, doesn't look like a traditional receiver, but now it can actually form multiple beams and communicate at the same time to hundreds of satellites. It is a absolutely one of those, um, ah, here we go, and Alana, Alana Fane, who, who helped set it up. Um, these are incredible uh, breakthroughs, and it's that deep tech that it's not an order of magnitude, order of magnitude improvement. It is two, three orders of magnitude, and that's what you want to be looking for in your deep tech, where you are pursuing things that are that transformative. And it means by the time you've commercialized the product and scaled up and manufactured and everything else and signed the contracts, the rest of the industry may have caught up a little, but you're still orders of magnitude ahead because you had such an outrageous head start. And uh, yeah, this is just, I think, going to be one of those success stories that uh, people will hear about in the same way that perhaps we you know, hear about Wi-Fi, which was a, uh, essentially a, a derivative of some uh, technology that was used to hunt for exploding black holes of all things. Um, but the, um, it, it turned out to be a great way to, uh, in a mathematical sense, to clean up the signal of Wi-Fi signals that might be bouncing around your, your house and reflecting off walls, et cetera. Um, this, this little technique that cleaned up the signal in the search for black holes, patented, thankfully, by the CSRO, um, ultimately uh, delivered something like a $100, $150 million uh, royalty uh, to, to the CSRO for um, that invention when it was incorporated into Wi-Fi. Yeah, but this is one of the things that um, I was hoping we could talk about, given your role at Swinburne now, is basically to bring, if I'm not mistaken, Alan, to bring space technology and things that we're using out there to mm. solve problems down here um, and th- through industry as well. And I was hoping you could bring um, some ideas of what that looks like because a lot of people think, Alan, they think, yeah, it's great. You, you think about, you know, you talk about science and it's wonderful. We captivate. We talk about, you know, all the things that could be out there, but we've got problems here at home, right? Like they think mm-hmm. this is what people sure. think. And, and so I guess the, there's, a, there's, two, there's two questions in there. One is like, well, why study the stars and what's out there? Like, how does that benefit us here? And then the second part of that question is, do, do you have some examples of how we can transform that to helping us today? Yeah, so I think there's that long lead time blue sky research where by pushing the bounds of, of technology, of understanding, you innovate. And by the way, it's really hard. If anyone's got a business and they've got an R&D team, it is really hard mm. to set 100 smart people up in a given direction and have them innovate, right? You can't just give, dump money on a table, have 100 engineers, scientists, and say, you know, now create me something uh, truly groundbreaking, right? It doesn't. That's not how innovation works. We are directed by the mission, by the goal, and we are, uh, you know, helpfully in science, it becomes self-regulating, self-organizing. So just give the money, and the scientists will pursue the discovery process, and in doing so, create these these spin-out technologies. And very often, those scientists are not the right people, by the way, to commercialize. I really need to make that clear. The entrepreneur is an absolute critical element of that translation journey. It can be a scientist, right? We've got the examples of Michael Berkick in quantum example over in Sydney and um, uh, um, 
in a very small way myself, a little bit with my own spin out M, M detect. Um, uh, but, but the idea of blue sky research is I think an inspiring one and one that does derive the wider economy benefits through the spin outs and also the wonderful trained staff and students who, who work in those projects and then go out into the wider economy. Oh, okay. Yeah. So can yeah, you tell so us yeah, a little bit about your spinoff? I think that's a really good way to illustrate, um, how this like hits home. Yeah, so this is uh, a company based around uh, pasted uh, detectors that uh, can see muons or particles from space, highly penetrating particles, naturally occurring. They just fly in uh, from, you know, feeding black holes, exploding stars, you know, they're most energetic events in the universe. And they are constantly raining down and they are able to penetrate hundreds of meters of rock. So the key here for the company is if you can take these very cheap, robust, modular detectors, place them uh, below the ground, uh, below an area of interest, you can use these muons like an X-ray-like scan of that region. So in particular, we have a, a federal uh, funded uh, program, which is a world first to use these muons to uh, scan the tailings dam uh, uh, wall in, in, uh, with our partner Oz Minerals in South Australia. So these are large structures, you know, containing hundreds of millions of tons of, of potentially of, of um, waste from the mining uh, process. You know, as we ramp up our critical mineral search, as we electrify, as we, we pursue that green economy, we will be doing more mining and potentially creating more uh, tailings. We have to come up with a way to safely and cost-effectively monitor the stability of those walls. And uh, if anyone saw the footage of so, you know, some Arco disaster in the, the mm. Valle incident where the, the whole thing just collapsed and just you know, destroyed lives and livelihoods on an apocalyptic scale, I mean, it's absolutely horrifying stuff. So the potential for these muons to scan the walls, to see this, the failures before they become critical, that's what we're uh, uh, pursuing. There's many other sectors we could uh, work in with this technology, but that's that's a real powerful motivator for us. And yeah, here here it is. I mean, look, it's just it's just apocalyptic. So we, um, but the journey for that company, just to maybe talk about this as a, um, in fact, I mean, there's there's by the way, there's there's two tailings failures every three years on average, right? So this is not a, a, an uncommon event. So there's a pressing need, but that's not what we developed the muon detectors for. We, uh, uh, particularly Shanti uh, Krishnan and Craig Webster, uh, who are, uh, are the sort of the engineering brains behind all of this, they developed these detectors because we were going a kilometer underground for a dark matter detector saber. Uh, we placed it a kilometer underground so that no radiation, the muons in particular, um, could hit it and blind it in its search for dark matter, which is super esoteric, right? Like it's mm. this missing component is, you know, five times more than everything else in the known uh, universe that we can see um, put together. And it's gravity is in fact what holds our galaxy together. So, you know, it's an important ingredient to the cosmological story, but we actually don't know what it is. So this detector is, Sabre is designed to find it. Um, but it was being, it would be blinded were we to search for the dark matter on the surface by this radiation. So you go deep underground and even at a kilometer depth, these muons can still penetrate. So we had to develop detectors that could tell the Sabre, you know, the, the, the bigger experiment, uh-oh, you know, muon coming through, stop collecting data, it's passed, 
you can start. Right. Okay. okay. But because of science, we don't have any money for that, right? So we had to innovate and create an ultra cheap detector for that. And it was at the bottom of a gold mine, an active gold mine store uh, in Victoria. And it meant we had to build something that was also cheap and rugged as well. And uh, eventually we realized, you know, filing a few patents on this, there was something quite interesting here. And then during COVID formally spun that out. That was my... Um, uh, you know, a COVID project, sourdough kind of <laughs> equivalent, and uh, and you know it's been um, growing, uh, uh, well, going, you know, going gangbusters ever since. And that would we would never have landed on this potential solution to the you know really incredibly hard, challenging uh, um, environmental uh, uh, issue as well as operational for for the mines. In fact, even. Um, for the directors of these companies, they're very motivated to find a way to, to, to remedy this. Just, you could lose your license to operate the mine. You could, in killing people, you yourself could be personally liable. I mean, you know, as manslaughter in Australia, these are real serious issues, but they're very, it's very hard to find an, an easy, cheap way to see through a hundred meters of, of rock. It is extremely tough and, mm. and I'm very proud of the team in, in uh, what we've been able to do with MDTEC. So, so we never meant to land there as an end goal. And I think that that's the important point. We did some blue sky research. The challenges drove us to innovate, develop new technologies. We could spot that opportunity commercially, or at least as, as, a, um, as an environmental need. And then the commerciality has, has been developed since. So that's the order that I've taken and I've been involved in the whole uh, process, which is, you know, doesn't necessarily need to be the case for most scientists. They, they're happy to see this work be taken up and, and taken on. Now, the work that we do in Swinburne and the, the space, um, uh, the space technology industry institute is a little different. In that domain, we are having companies approach us for the you know, internal excellence across the university and data science and material science, and ask us for help. They'll come uh, typically with a, a problem. There was a, a partnership with EY. We have a strategic partnership. Uh, with EY's Earth Observation Team. And there was a very large client of theirs who had a lot of remote infrastructure that needed to be monitored. In particular, vegetation growth along a rail corridor was causing uh, bushfire risks. And they would send people out to monitor, literally to say, that's too close, that's too much, let's go mm. out and burn. I mean, incredibly laborious, costly, and dangerous. I mean, you don't want to send people out to these remote areas unnecessarily. So uh, we were able to create uh, AI tools that would... Uh, be actually trained by the people on site. And I'll get back to that in a second why that's important. Um, so the AI would detect vegetation growth and then uh, send automated uh, flags for work orders to go out and clear it, right? So in that sense, you can more cheaply, more safely, and uh, um, with a, a smaller environmental footprint um, control for vegetation, because you can limit the, the bushfire risks and you know the uncontrolled burns, and you can be a lot more managed in the process. The point about the fact the staff were involved uh, from this um, this company is is key in the training. We did a semi-supervised learning uh, um, scheme, and that was critical because not only were we asking the domain experts, is that a problem, right? It's not me going, oh, that looks like a bush that I'd be worried about. I mean, what do I know? Mm. I've asked them, and the answers allow them to have confidence in the data products and the decisions that AI is making or ultimately will recommend to them. Uh, because they've been involved in that process and that training. And I think that's a really important part of the adoption of automation and new technologies to have the 
uh, staff as well as consumers involved in the process as much as one can. It gives confidence, it gives a better product as well at the end, uh, but I think it really is instrumental in gaining those uh, uh, ease of adoption and uh, ease of usage that really are just so critical to the success of technology. I mean, most of these technology implementations will fail, not because of the technology being bad, but because the user doesn't want to do mm. the process or doesn't want, or the staff member doesn't want to adopt that new framework. So I think this is a, a really nice way to, to gain the best of both worlds. But uh, we, we did this uh, very large industry project. We've, we've done many others since in, in the use of imagery from space. Um, one of the primary uses of satellite, uh, the other is communicating. So relaying of, of data from across the world. And these are about uh, the global space economy at the moment is somewhere north of $300 billion value within Australia alone. If you look at government expenditure and, and other um, purchases of assets from space, it's, it's a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar industry already. So it's a big business. And this is why there's a lot of excitement about these new um, mm. companies that are being formed to take advantage of that. We have the likes of Fleet um, or Miriota who are involved in the uh, relaying of information through their own satellites to ground. Uh, we have uh, Heo Robotics who are doing the maintenance and, you know, Domain awareness, so the ability to see the things in the orbit, much like Merchant Widefield Array could, and uh, mm -hmm. they do it with direct cameras. Uh, but this is a Sydney company who is doing that, but then also with the idea for maintenance, so the ability to go up and actually repair satellites, not just give up on them. You know, these are very, very expensive pieces of hardware. You mm -hmm. can refuel them, you could repair them. So all of these companies are now becoming globally recognized, and at Swinburne, we are helping companies in their maturation of their space technologies or the translation of their expertise in one domain to the space domain. Uh, there's a, a wonderful example, companies like uh, Amiga Engineering, um, uh, uh, we have uh, some other uh, partners involved in a, uh, like Mariota, uh, like Moran that are they're building into a rocketry supply chain. So, you know, our role in this is going to try to be, can we create new manufacturing processes or new kinds of surface coatings for the hardware involved in the uh you know in rocketry or in space there are it, it's hard to imagine an environment that is more destructive quite frankly than than space particularly where you're trying to go out of and come back into earth's atmosphere you reach incredible pressures temperatures mm. oxygen is incredibly chemically reactive so all of these things are, are challenging is there a way for the very latest in material science to be applied to improve the performance and lifetime of these devices. We've done this already for the automotive industry, uh, for the uh, naval uh, needs. We work closely with defense and we have many projects uh, with a range of industry partners, but the ones that get me most excited are where you have a local manufacturer who has seen this opportunity and is wanting to just make a tweak to a product line and can they then take that on and ultimately to the final frontier. And that's that's mm. how you grow an economy and make, I think, a public support space because they see it as instrumental to their own well-being and, and uh, economic benefit. It, it's not just something out there. Rather, it is instrumental in making the nation wealthier, healthier, and safer. And you can do that all more cheaply through space. I think there are so many, if, if people are, actually wanted to trace the origins of a technology they could find so much that links back to some of these 
budgets from government and from um, various organizations around the world that are investing in space technologies, if you like, even things like cordless power drills. Right, you don't have a cord. Oh yes, yeah. You don't, yeah, a, yeah. you don't have a cord in space, right? You can't just plug it into the mains power and go and fix the international space station. So you yeah. need a battery to power your yeah. drill, right? And yeah. so there are so many different things. And just to confirm what you were saying before, because I think I need to just circle back to this with your the business M Detect. Yeah. Um, the idea is that there are certain types of particles mm-hmm. that go through. In this case, a hundred meters mm-hmm. of a of a tailings dam or something like that to determine, I guess maybe like structural integrity. I give mm-hmm. you a picture of that dam, that tailings dam, so you don't have to send some sort of thing down or yeah. you know do some sort of I don't I don't even know what you would do to scan that entire dam to make sure it's safe. But mm-hmm. this is not. You said that this basically come from the Saber project, which is something that you're working on as well. Mm-hmm. Um, install here in Victoria um, and maybe we can spend a bit of time on that too because and this is I mean this is a whole there's like a day's worth of podcasting in itself Alan so I know I'm yeah. trying to get you to condense things but I was amazed when I thought that you had to dig a kilometer underground just to get rid of what seems like the rays of the sun mm-hmm. and, and yet even a kilometer underground there are still particles going through the earth Yep. That you don't, you can't see, you can't feel them, but they're going through the earth, and that's the only place that you could probably detect them. Um, can you talk yep. about this, which I think is incredible? Um, your sure. study of dark matter and why you had to do that to figure it out, or at least attempt to yeah. figure it out. No, no, absolutely. So, uh, yes, the the by the way, the the, the use of the muons is is uh, you know. Uh, not just in structural integrity, it's mineral exploration. You're, you're measuring density because dense structures preferentially, eventually, do stop the muons, mm. uh, which is lucky because this is it just takes a long um, amount. There's a lot of material needed to stop them, which is why we go a kilometer underground. But again, even there, they're still able to reach. But the idea of, of the dark matter, just very um, big picture, they're... The galaxy as we know it, this flat pancake spiral of, of um, you know, many stars, hundreds of billions of stars, and some, probably about a similar amount of, of mass in, in just hydrogen helium floating around between them. Uh, if you zoom out and you had the eyes that could perceive the dark matter, you would see that, in fact, that that elegant structure was embedded within a vast cloud of dark matter. This is an invisible particle uh, whose literally doesn't absorb uh, or sh- or shine light. It uh, there's a lot of it out there because we can see through its gravity, through the motion of the stars. They are being pulled around by this the gravity of this unseen partner. So we can infer its existence. Uh, astronomy can tell us how much there is. It can tell us where it is, but it can't tell us what it is. So the hope of the Saber experiment is that. The uh, dark matter will occasionally have a head-on collision with the nucleus, the center of the atom. It will cause it to fly off, to recoil, like two snooker balls colliding, and off it goes. And, in fact, this must be happening to us right now. I mean, on a statistical level, one of your, you know, with a very large audience that you have, one of us will have been struck by dark matter in this, <laughs> in this period of the interview. 
Um, but they, you know, we won't have felt that. And if you think you did, it was it was probably just you know, um, you know, const consternation at my terrible uh, explanations earlier. But this is a very much a subtle signal, uh, and we make for very bad dark matter detectors. So Saber is built around a very good dark matter detector, and that is a crystal of um, ultra pure sodium iodide crystal. So not too dissimilar to what you might you know get in your sea flake salt, you know, mm -hmm. very fancy and sprinkling it. Um, but a single ultra pure crystal uh, developed uh, by uh, Frank Calaprice in, in um, Princeton and these kinds of uh, crystals and their like will flash when struck by dark matter. So the key is that you put two very sensitive cameras, either end of the crystal, you wrap the whole thing in, in ultra pure uh, copper, you put that into a 10 ton vessel, which is at the moment sitting in, in my lab in Wonturna uh, campus here in Swinburne. And then you take all of that to the bottom of the gold mine. And there in the dark at the bottom of this gold mine, protected by a kilometer of rock from the rays from the sun and these exploding stars and other exotic particles, hopefully the only thing able to get down all that way is this ghost-like dark matter passing through the solid walls and eventually in the dark will hit a crystal and cause it to glow. And, and with that, we will <laughs> know the nature of the dark matter through the kind of flash of light we get. So it's an absolutely mental project and I, and I adore it uh, because of the engineering challenge, because of the extremes you have to go to. Uh, as I mentioned that, that perhaps one of us has been struck by dark matter during this conversation, every one of us will have been struck by about 200 muons um, in, in that, uh, uh, it was essentially every few seconds actually. So, you know, absolutely, you know, billions of times more hits, flashes of light, so to speak, for the detector when it's on the surface versus that one-off signal perhaps that might be coming from the dark matter. So you have to go deep underground where you've, you know, blocked out as many of these particles as you can. And then perhaps, ah, here we go, you drive down the, the, um, the gold mine, thankfully, it's an active gold mine. Uh, they're still pumping air down there. Um, <laughs> wonderful guys at, at Stoll. And you can uh, eventually, after about a 20, 30-minute drive, going around and around and around, going ever deeper, you get to a, a cathedral-sized laboratory that's been excavated. And um, there is this uh, giant vessel. Now, the reason it's so large, uh, here's the here's this you know really incredible structure. You've got these tiny tunnels, and you come around the corner, and then this giant blast door, and then you go through. Mm -hmm. You have to do um, eventually. You'll have to uh, decontaminate and, and um, uh, be you know completely hosed down and sprayed from all the dirt. Uh, it's very much a, a clean lab, but the whole project is is um, led by Professor Elizabeth Barbero, both the lab but also the detector and um, the opportunity to be a part of a what is a global hunt in fact the first uh, uh largest detector in the southern hemisphere so the eyes of the world will be we're watching this tiny regional town is is pretty incredible and it's not something i could have could have aimed for i mean these these projects take years to go from idea to developed plan to actually you know develop technology and installed and I think it's one of those journeys. And in fact, we'll then take five years of searching before we'll know whether we you know, are right or wrong about our guess as to the kind of dark matter and hence detectability of it with this detector. So it is an extraordinary program, but the the kinds of technologies and the spin-outs you get, the benefits for the wider 
economy are already happening. So we don't have to wait for the discovery just to get a benefit for, as a society. But I would also say that's not why we do science, at least not alone, right? There is a benefit mm. to that, but the fundamental curiosity driven aspect of it, that is itself the justification. I do think it's important that we also have structure around those programs that can allow the technologies developed to spin out. And in fact, at CERN, arguably one of the great quests of humanity, uh, thousands of, of engineers and scientists working together, smashing atoms together to create ever more energetic collisions and create new kinds of particles and probe the nature of, of our fundamental um, smaller scales of the universe. Those programs are generations in the making. I mean, literally generations of people will go through that That every 20, 30 years is, is about the upgrade life cycle for a facility like CERN, for the LHC as a largest collider right now. But around that, literally co-located uh, uh, along the ring, but is the idea square. So there is an actual program by which they take the technologies and match them with entrepreneurs, match them with a mm -hmm. broad range of disciplines, actually, uh, students as well as staff, to come up with ideas. They are presented a challenge and environmental, perhaps it's, it's guided by the UN SDG, whatever it might be. And then here's this smorgasbord of technology that we have at CERN. What do you think is going to help? And they match the need and the technology and build a business around it. So there's this incredible um, process now by which those uh, innovations are let out into the marketplace. And uh, at the Dark Matter Center of Excellence, a national focus dark matter uh, research uh, undertaking, we are uh, uh, partners now with that, that idea square. So we're actually involved in those. Hopefully our technologies can be one of those offered on the smorgasbord for solving global challenges. But mm -hmm. again, you do these kinds of things because they are, they are fascinating. They, you can drive teams for years of focus to understand something that no one has ever understood before. And the fact that you can then also help people save the world potentially with some of these innovations and breakthroughs, how, how could you say no to a career in science? Yeah. Um, I, I am envious, you know, uh, because I, I, I was thinking about on the drive into the city today, Alan, I was thinking, how cool is it? You've obviously started a family and, and done all that. And I just think, how cool would it be to grow up and, uh, and you're my dad and you're telling me about all these wonderful things like about science and it, because you inspire so many people to think about these problems and then you get to do that as well, uh, in turn, um, yeah. in your own little experiment there as well. So I just think that's, well, that's well, on that point, actually, it's fascinating because I'm trying to do this for real, as you say, with, with my kids and, um, my daughter is incredibly, uh, the elder daughter is incredibly bright, smart, driven, loves princesses, but I was, you know, particularly delighted that we also got given a very colorful crystal set to grow homegrown crystals and the like. And that's, you know, that's really captivating her as well. So I think there's ways to, to find um, uh, scientific lessons in, in everything and uh, was particularly enamored by a, a Christmas gift of a, um, uh, 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 you know, home, uh, DIY rocket where you put, you know, citric acid and some baking soda, you know, get some carbon dioxide, gets you know, bubbles out. And if you trap it quickly enough with the little rocket, off it goes and pops. So lots and lots of fun that I'm trying to sneak in. But she's very wise to when I'm 
to obviously trying to do a lesson, a science mm -hmm. lesson. <laughs> so, <laughs> so at that point, sort of looks at me askance. It's like, there's a lesson here, isn't there? Anyway. Oh, no. I've gone too far. <laughs> um, no, I do the same thing. So for my 30th birthday present, I got a um, gigantic telescope. Like I just, I loved it. Yeah, it was my thing, right? Like that was the thing. That was my COVID thing. And um, my sister come down from the country. She's 12 and we, we put it on the decking and we had a look. It was a very clear night. And we used the, I think it's the Skylight app. I can't remember the exact name of it. It shows you where things are in space. And, um, and we did that and she just had an absolute ball with it. So I- Awesome. Yeah. And that was just like an eye-opening thing to me. Like, wow, she's really, really like, this is her thing. So I yeah. gave her an extra hobby, which was so powerful to see in her eyes. Mm -hmm. um, mate, I, I think there's one more thing which I'd love to talk about. And maybe if we can just spend just a couple of minutes on this mm -hmm. even. You've got this wonderful series on Audible. I think it's an it's oh, an Audible, yes. yeah. Audible exclusive. Is yes, it? it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Astronomical. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So this is this is a, um, a search for alien life, and um, it was developed with with uh, Graham Phillips, who's a great science communicator, who's a host of Catalyst, and we basically went and interviewed. Uh, well, you know, essentially got to talk to all my friends uh, in the industry and ask them the question that I always get asked, which is, "Are aliens real?" And yeah. uh, some of these people are the people developing, you know, the James Webb Space Telescope, which is designed to search the atmosphere of alien worlds for uh, signs of life, right? So, you know, they're the people you want to talk to or the Square Climate Array and it's search for alien radio signals, right? So technological civilizations. Um, we, yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was an incredible experience talking um, to friends and to, to people I've long admired in the, in the industry and to ask them these hard questions and really narrow down about the chances for life, what it might look like, what's the search strategies for life, um, how can we be smart about the way that we we search? And um, it was, yeah, no no spoilers. Um, we didn't find aliens at the end of it, but we definitely, I think, got a very strong. I, I personally was was quite struck by that we could be the generation that makes that discovery. And I say that not only because now we know just how many alien planets are out there that could be habitable, and and if you. You know, some back of the envelope numbers I did. It's about four billion Earth-like worlds around sun-like stars in our galaxy alone, right? Four billion. So if you say that we're alone, I mean, there's four billion to one odds. I mean, that's pretty crazy. Mm. A pretty great man if you if you would go and take that. So I think that this kind of a um, a topic it is becoming more uh, likely in the sense of now we've known of the potential, but also our technology to search the James Webb Space Telescope or JWST is it's is able to see starlight pass through these atmospheres of alien worlds when the, that planet comes between us and the star. That's what we call a sunset, by the way. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the color shift you get on our Earth. Um, that imprint of the chemicals in the atmosphere of that alien world uh, is indelibly uh, left on the starlight as it makes its way to us. And we can then hope to distinguish mm -hmm. what are known as biosignatures, you know, the things that living organisms breathe out or need to um, exist. And we have we didn't know at the time we made that if that would work and it has now actually detected sulfur dioxide which is a very interesting chemical not on a world that would be able to house alien life it's it has to be said but 
um, it's just started. We have the square kilometer finally breaking ground for the mm. full thing that might detect alien radio signals. So in other words, all the things that we were optimistic about logically speaking here on earth as ways to search in this generation, they're actually now happening, right? So even something that I literally just made is already even more compelling and probable a, a search. And by the end of it, essentially every scientist I spoke to came was of the opinion that alien life is out there. Uh, but very much all of us agreed that it hadn't come here except for one. And you can listen <laughs> to there to that conversation is quite exciting, but I do think in general, um, whether that alien life is microbial or, or technologically sophisticated is a very, very different question. And right now there's no evidence to suggest sadly that anyone is out there. There's, there's, it's a very quiet universe, but we mm. keep listening and we keep searching. And I think this is the generation that will find it if it's out there. I just think that's incredible. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you was basically when you think that we, if we were, cause we, we are so early in this journey, but we have so yeah. many resources now as a civilization that are look that's looking out. Uh, even one of the things that I learned during the series was um, Russian, um, I think he was a technology, I think he might have been a, a physicist by trade, Yuri Milner, dedicated yes. $100 million over 10 years just to scan systems and, and to yeah. send something back. You know, this is someone individually who's saying, let's put some money behind this and let's actually see what we can see within a very short period of time. Now, so Yuri Milner's effort is, is known as Breakthrough Listen. It's, it, the money has been used to upgrade the parts rated telescope here in, in Australia and many others around the world. Uh, it is designed new AI to do the search. Uh, the intention is to scan a million of the closest stars for signs of, of intelligent uh, uh, communicating uh, life. And it is uh, stunning. And he has said, if that doesn't work, then we'll find another decades worth funding for another approach. And, and I, that's why I think that we are, you know, this decade or the next, we will make the discovery of alien life, be it in our own solar system because of missions like Europa Clipper and others, and also the telescopes that are now transforming our search. But uh, I don't think we have too long to wait if it's out there, but I would say also be patient because nature doesn't have to be kind <laughs> in searches for alien life or dark matter for that matter. For, for sure. Um, so there are a few things that I'll point out with Astronomical, which is uh, Professor Alan Duffy's um, Audible book, which is there's a segment on UFOs. So if you love um, that, if that intrigues you, mm -hmm. I know Alan was a skeptic. I think I can say that. But um, the way you articulated different perspectives is incredible. Well, I'm a skeptic that it's that it's necessarily aliens, but I'm not a, you know, I, I I think it's very compelling as, as we explore it, that definitely something was being detected some of these times. Mm. It's not, you know, you should be unidentified flying object is what it means. It doesn't mean it's aliens, but it's something we need to learn more about. Yeah. There is, I would encourage anyone to, well, firstly to listen to it, but to go and search for um, Tic Tac alien. I think it's what you could probably yeah. put into Google yeah. and it would come up. Yeah. So Tic Tac alien and see what comes up. Um, Oumuamua, is that how you pronounce it? The well, this, this, yeah, so this is a real thing that came screaming in through the solar system. We think it's probably from another, so, well, it is definitely from another um, uh, stellar system. Um, some scientists think it might have been an alien probe. Most of us don't think that. But look, the jury is still out in the search for what exactly it was. Um, but these are all things that are reminders that 
extraordinary things happen and we need to be prepared. We need the technology to search, to go out and intercept in that instance, mm. the, the craft. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, thanks to the DART mission, we actually have an instrument that could potentially make its way and intercept um, uh, fast moving objects. But I think in the search for all of these things, the idea of being curious, data led, uh, and uh, in the main, uh, respectful of, of the process and that it can take time to figure out exactly what all these things are. It's, it's very deeply satisfying, of course, to jump to the it's an alien answer. Mm. Uh, I think that's, a, that's where you land after you've ruled everything out. And this is why the search for alien life in astronomical will be very cautious with that claim that it's alien. And I think that that's a key reminder. It's going to take a long, long time, even when we have the signal, to rule everything else out. And that's that's just right. That's that's the scientific process. Alan, you've covered so much with us today. Um, I'll probably leave our listeners with a question of, do you think that um, this is a rhetorical question for them to consider before they go and listen to this, to audit your Audible book, which is, um, do you think that alien life would be AI or microbial? Mm. So would it be so advanced that it's actually an AI and it doesn't look like something we see in the, the movies? That will be my question for you, dear listener. But you can follow Alan on Twitter. You can find him online. I'll put all the links in the show notes. You've got your own website as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know, you know, you're a busy man with with family to tend to now. And I just really appreciate you taking some time out to talk about everything from dark matter to aliens to industry. Um, I know you do such great work at Swinburne. So I just really appreciate you taking some time out to chat with us all on the show, mate. Uh, thanks so much, Owen. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure and a delight. And really, I think that is the broadest range of topics I've ever <laughs> spoken about in one interview. So you, you've got a record right there. Uh, thanks, mate. I appreciate it. And thanks for joining us. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core in a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.